You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Find a Bible. I strongly encourage you to find a Bible and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, our sermon title today is this. It's um, Made New and Motivated. Made New and Motivated. And what that does, it leads us to a very important question. The question, the obvious question should be this. Um, what motivates you? What does motivate you? What, what motivates me? What, what motivates us? In fact, if you wanted to, you could, you, could, you could ask that question to people who know you really well. and just that, that takes humility because the answers coming back may not only be what you want to hear, but if you're really interested to find out where your heart's at, you could ask a spouse, a really good friend, uh, you know, someone who knows you, and just say, hey, man, what would you say motivates me the most? And those are very, very telling questions and answers because it tells us where we go, why we go, who we go, how we go. It really reveals, again, where our hearts are at. I ask you right now, between you and the Lord, uh, what motivates you? What motivates you, Robbie? Uh, what motivates us? Because whatever motivates us drives us. And whatever drives us is what, listen, it's what moves us. What motivates us moves us. Because to be motivated is to be moved. And the definition behind motivation is um, action or resolve. What, what I'm motivated by inspires the action I take and the resolve I have into what I am doing or not doing. Motivation also so often determines our very behavior. You, you, you look at a behavior, you dial it back, and you find the source of that behavior, and it's the motivation, the inspiration that someone has for the reasons they decided to act out in that way. Here are some, a few examples. When you are motivated by hunger, uh, you move to the fridge. True? You're motivated by hunger, and it causes you to move towards the fridge. When you're motivated by pleasure, you move, we move towards uh, self-fulfillment. We, we find a way to fulfill the desires that we deem as pleasure. When we are motivated by achievement, that moves us to a hard work. Conversely, motivated by laziness, that leads you to not very much, right? When we are uh, motivated uh, by greed, we move to, tell me, money. We move towards money when all we want is that. By the way, here's a picture of a guy motivated by greed. Check this out. Look at this. And be very careful because if this is your motivation, this is your apparatus, it's not going to end well. You cannot serve both God and money. Someone sent me this a couple weeks ago. I loved it so much. Didn't take long to get it up in front of the church. Amen? Here we go. All right? Right? But listen, learn, learn, listen, learn, learn. What's your motivation? If your motivation is apart from the Lord, you're going to end up in the grave. But when your motivation is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, listen, there is no grave. And we've learned that in 2 Corinthians 5. In fact, death becomes the entranceway into life. When we are motivated by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the point of this chapter, we move towards him. We live in him. And this is one of the realities, ready? One of the realities of being made new. If we are truly made new, our motivations should be turned upside down. And just think who wrote 2 Corinthians. Paul did. And just think of Paul's testimony. His motivations before Christ. His motivation on the road to Damascus was to kill Christians and stamp out the name of Jesus Christ. 
He is confronted with the gospel. He becomes a new creation. His scales are lifted. His eye can see. He is regenerated. He becomes alive. He is no longer dead. And tell me, does motivation strange? Ah, yes. His motivations went from killing Christians to birthing Christians. His motivation went from stamping out Jesus' name to giving his whole life for the exaltation of the name of Jesus Christ. If we are truly made new, our motivations will be turned upside down. Icons, new body made new, new vision made new. Where's the heart? Listen, a new passion. If we're saved in Jesus Christ, we get a new passion. We have a new motivation. And that's what Paul's saying again within the text right now. So the question becomes again, hey, 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 what motivates you? What motivates you? If you're made new, then your answers should line up with Paul's. Let's find out. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. For what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. I'd circle heart. I'd circle outward appearance. Verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. This is so great. You want to talk about motivation? For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore all have died. And he died for all. Listen to this. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. What are you motivated by? What motivates you? What motivates me? What motivates us? It's it's clear right here. We're made new. No longer live for ourselves, but for him. But for him. You want to say that? But for him. For him. For Jesus Christ, who for their sake died and was raised. Made new and motivated. Here we go. Here we go. From this text, what motivates Paul? Motivation number one is this. He is motivated by the fear of the Lord. If we are truly made new, we are motivated in the fear of the Lord. Again, look at verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Let's stop right there for a second. Now, for us to come to verse 11 just means that we just left verse 10. Fair? True? And verse 10, if we remember from previous time together, verse 10 speaks of impending judgment for believers. Uh, Verse 10 is a very serious verse outlining that at the end of our day, we will stand before God in some form, the judgment seat of Christ, and we'll have to give an account of what we did with what was entrusted to us. And will our good works, will they end up being hay and straw that are burned in the fire? Or will our good works end up being like gold, silver, and precious stones that make it through the fire? Now listen, listen, this is not a judgment of salvation. Our good works don't save us. This is the whole point. God has loved us so much. Now because he loved us so much, we take his love and we move in his love and we are motivated to serve him with our lives, with what he's given to us. And we find out what we did with what he entrusted. Not salvation, but it is very, very important. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So so right here, the wise person, okay, the wise person separates right here in verse 11 eternal motivations from temporal motivations. 
Um, I can't tell you how many times a day as I walk through my life, I'm like, what's eternal, what's temporal? What's eternal, what's temporal? What's going to last, what's not? That's not lasting, Robbie. That's temporal. Don't focus on that. Don't live for that. That is dumb. Children, that's a lie. Children, that is dumb. Children, that is false. Robbie, that is false. That is temporal. What is eternal? Live for eternal. Love eternal. Pray eternal. Worship the Christ who gives the eternal. Every time, all throughout the day, this conversation in my head all the time. What's eternal? What's temporal? Why? It's called wisdom. Wisdom is constantly discerning what counts, what doesn't, what lasts, what dies. Are we wise? Paul wants us to be wise. The Lord wants us to be wise. And this is why then he says in verse 11, he says, therefore, therefore, because of the truth of verse 10, because of impending judgment, For believers, because we have to give an account, therefore, watch this, it must result in a fear of the Lord. If we understand the reality of what's going to happen with our lives, then this must result in a fear of the Lord. Now, do you see the word knowing in verse 11? The word knowing in verse 11, this isn't just I'm gaining information. Okay, so I have some information, and I understand there's going to be something that happens when I'm done. I stand before Christ. No, no, no. This, uh, in the Greek here, really means I'm appreciating. So knowing the fear of the Lord, appreciating the fear of the Lord. What does the text say in verse 11? It says, um, we persuade others. So knowing that judgment's coming, give an account for our lives before the Lord, It brings to us a fear of the Lord, not a fear of man, I'm not supposed to, a fear of the Lord. We appreciate the fear of the Lord, and then it gives us a resolve. It motivates us to seek to persuade others with our lives, with the one life that we actually have to live. Notice within this chapter, to be made new is to see differently. And to see differently then, if we really see differently. See, here's what happens is, new body, the hope of glory, new vision, light bulb. When you have new vision, you got a new passion. You got a new motivation. You got a new heart. Right? So if we truly see differently, then we want to live differently. What happens? Um, Our value system changes. We're not motivated. We're not supposed to be motivated now by the fear of man. We're supposed to be motivated by the fear of the Lord. Now, when Paul says knowing the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord here is not Paul having some terrible fright of God. This isn't Paul being afraid of God. This is Paul having reverential awe of God, knowing God's glory, knowing God's justice, knowing God's holiness, knowing God's omnipotence and omniscience. And he will make all things right, knowing that God will do what he says he will do. There's a, a fear, there's a, there's a, there, there's a reverence, there's, a, there's an awe, there's a seriousness of worship that overcomes Paul. And he, and he says, and, and I expect all of us to appreciate the fear of the Lord here based on what we know to be true. Paul says, I have to give an account of my life, so I'm filled with a fear of the Lord. Notice for Paul, this sobers him. This fuels him. This motivates him. Notice, the fear of the Lord makes Paul a smart man. Are we smart? Because if we're smart, we will also appreciate 
the fear of the Lord. No wonder then Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Say it again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Why, 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 why? Because, because the fear of the Lord is what brings clarity to life. The fear of the Lord causes us to know why are we here? But listen, think, think. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, okay? I love doing this in scripture. Just ask the other question. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then you remove the fear of the Lord, and what do you got? An absence of wisdom. You have foolishness. You have dumb people. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Without the fear of the Lord, you remove clarity, you remove wisdom, you remove purpose. To remove the fear of the Lord, ready? You remove the fear of the Lord and you remove true and pure worship. This is why John Murray, he said this, I always love this quote, he said this, the highest reaches of saint, big word for growing more like Christ, The highest reaches of sanctification are only realized in the fear of the Lord. Leave that up for a second. Think about this, okay? It wasn't long ago I walked into a building. I was trying to get to the eighth floor. I walked into an elevator. I quickly found out it only went to the fourth floor. As long as I was in that elevator, I wasn't getting any. My ceiling was the fourth floor. I needed to get to the eighth. If I stayed in the elevator, I will only go to level four. I can't get any higher. I had to get out of the elevator. I had to access the elevator. went up to the eighth floor in order to get to the desired goal. If you remove the fear of the Lord, there's a ceiling on your spiritual development and growth you will never, you will never overcome. You will never get beyond. Think of the churches that lack the fear of the Lord. They have a ceiling upon their ministry that will not go above that. You cannot grow more like Christ, the fullness of what we are, without the fear of the Lord in our lives where he gets the glory, he is honored, he is worshiped. We are not, we are small, we are less. He He is honored. He is revered. He is the one who deserves all our affection, all our lives. But if you remove the fear of the Lord, you've just limited the growth that can occur in your life as a husband, as a wife, as a family member, as a child of God. The highest, the highest level of sanctification will only be realized in the fear of the Lord. And what's so great here again, what's our motivation? What's our motivation? Notice In verse 11, it's the fear of the Lord that seeks to persuade others. But a lack of the fear of the Lord then is when we don't persuade others, ready? We please others. We're afraid of man as opposed to the fear of God. And so when we please others, then we're in big trouble. And there's a massive difference between pleasing God and seeking to please man. One is bolstered by the fear of God. One is bolstered by the fear of man. So what Paul does in the rest of verse 11, and I can read it for you there, he says, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is um, known also to your conscience. So he's saying here, he's saying this, okay, he goes, he goes, I'm living the fear of God, God knows this is true, and I'm praying, and I hope you know also, Corinthian church, that you know it's true as well. In other words, God knows my motives, and I have a clear conscience And I live powerfully in my integrity in this way, and I'm praying you also understand. So right here, we can can gather from verse 11 here. We can see this, that we can seek, listen carefully, we can seek to please God and then persuade men to the gospel, or we can seek to please man and persuade God. I'm going to put that quote on the screen here. I want you to look at this. I want you to think about this, okay? 
So we can seek to please God, and then we will persuade men to the gospel, regardless of the cost, because it's all about the Lord. It's about revering Him. Or, and here's the great temptation of our day, it's always been, especially now, this is the church, and it says, or you will seek to please man, and once you please man, what you do is you go back to God and you say, God, did you really mean to say this? Or can I change this part? Can I rip this page out? Can I change this doctrine? Can I soften the blow? God, God, I want to I want, I, I want, I correct you what you said because I really want to please man. And then we start to live these lives of decreasing power and of, and of spiritual ineffectiveness. But listen, pleasing God comes at a cost. But that's when the power comes. You please man, it's easy, it's easy, but then you lose the fruitfulness and the power from your life. What's the difference in this? The difference is the fear of the Lord. Question, are we motivated by the fear of man? Are we motivated by the fear of God? Tell me, tell me, why are so many churches taking the edge off certain doctrines? Why are so many churches telling more stories than Scripture? Why are so many churches, organizations, Christian organizations, trying to be liked by the public? Why are church leaders capitulating the culture? Why is the gospel message consistently being softened? The answer to all these questions is because the motivation is the fear of man, not the fear of God. His word is very clear. He has stated it before us. We know what he has said. The fear of the Lord says, I trust God, not man. I don't care if culture changes. I'm going with God. Every time a preacher stands up, he must make the decision, am I doing this for the Lord or am I doing this for other people? Am I doing this to be liked or am I doing this to honor the Lord? Do I understand that the day is coming, I have to stand before God and he was giving me his book and I will have to give an account to how I handled the word, the word that was true. And how many men, how many different people stand before the Lord and they started closing the book because of the fear of men and wanting to be liked and capitulating to the culture around them. That scares me to death. And the difference is the fear of the man versus fear of the Lord. Of course, this is why Paul says in Galatians 1 verse 10, he says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? And, and that, that's the difference. Am I motivated by man or am I motivated by God? Or am I trying to please man? I was still trying to please man. I would not be a servant of Christ. According to this verse, the Operating in the fear of man causes us to be so weakened in our very status of servants of, of Christ. just want you to think about that. Again, what motivates us? We're to be motivated in the fear. If we're made new, we're, we're to be motivated in the fear, fear of the Lord. Some of us have straight. God calls us back. The grace calls us back. The grace, come, I shall come back to where you're supposed to be. And he does, he forgives and he loves and he surrounds and he, and, he, and he restores. And he says, come back to the motivation that first saved you and now can lead you because glory is coming soon. Here's the second thing that Paul's motivated by. It's this, he's motivated within opposition. He's motivated within opposition. Now, think about it. Isn't it true in life that strong opposition can often result in a tremendous motivation. When we're strongly opposed, it can often result in a tremendous uh, resolve and motivation to press on. Why? 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 Well, because opposition in our lives, it, um, it brings focus. 
It brings clarity. It brings intensity. It brings, it brings resolve. Just, just, just think. Um, soldiers are never more ready and alert than when the enemy has drawn near. When the enemy's all far away, they, they rest, they're joking, playing cards, they're relaxing, they're getting... But the enemy draws near, man. No one's, no one's joking around anymore. And they are alert, they are ready, hands on guns. They are, they are totally ready, and, and, and they're, they're alert for the battle. It's the opposition that brings the motivation, that brings the clarity, that brings the perspective. Spiritually speaking, the persecuted church is, are, is so highly motivated because they see everything in front of them, what's at stake, what the cost is, who they're living for, why they're doing this. They're not fooling around. They're not bothering with earthly trinkets and trying to build up an earthly kingdom. They see the gospel so clearly. They know it's in front. The opposition increases their motivation. This is what's happening with Paul. In the church in Corinth, the Judaizers mainly, the opponents of Paul and the Christian faith, they were attacking him on every single angle. Any way they could try to undermine his ministry, they were trying to do. Now that can be very, very discouraging. Can you imagine you're Paul and you're going around and everything he does, they're trying to, trying to slant it, get an angle to take what he said and then twist it and then to give him, uh, uh, to ruin his integrity, his credibility and his purity. That could be very discouraging. Fair, that'd be very discouraging. But what Paul does here, he takes this opposition and he uses it towards encouragement. That's what the Lord does and wants to do within our lives. Look at verse 12 now. Verse 12, it says, now, we are not commending ourselves to you, Paul, says Paul, uh, again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in okay, the heart. Now, the very fact that Paul begins verse 12 with, uh, we are not commending ourselves, that leads us to believe that he was accused of doing that very thing. His opponents were constantly accusing him that he's commending himself, and we see that in other places in this letter as well. Again, his opponents after his integrity and his motives. What Paul does, he says, with a clear conscience before God, I want to empower you, church, to defend me. God knows who I am. God knows what I've done. Verse 11 and verse 12. Okay? He knows where I am. I empower you, church, to defend me. Within the opposition, it brings a clarity to Paul's life to say, my conscience is clean. My motives are pure. I have nothing to hide. The opposition to Paul's life. I want you to know this too. Paul's like, hey, you got my back, church? You got my back? You got my back? The opposition enhances the unity within the Corinthian church. The opposition is making it very clear who's with us, who's not with us, all on board. Let's join together to be strengthened in the pursuit of Jesus Christ for the gospel. You can boast about us because you know I'm legit in my motivations before God. I'm always amazed at that when the attack comes on the church and the people are really there, man. Like, I've seen this in subtle ways and significant ways throughout the history of our church, man. When things start to get hard, I have, I have watched, like I have often personally, and maybe you, I've never felt more supported, strengthened, uh, warm-hearted as I see men and women of this church coming together uh, around me and around each other to say, hey, you're not alone, you're not alone, and tears run down my cheeks as you understand we're not alone. We have each other. So many of you would go to bat time after time after time for the cause of Christ in this place. That, that's, that's super <laughs> blessing to me. That is unbelievably a blessing to me. There's hundreds of you that would do that. And we're praying for hundreds more. 
Because when the opposition comes, we find out where we stand. And the unity that's found, the awesome sense of God's power through the gospel, you find out who's really with you. That's what's so so listen, opposition can increase our motivation that we're made new. What do we live for? We're living for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then don't miss in verse 12 as well, it says that his enemies were all about the outward appearance. See that in verse 12? Outward appearance. And so what Paul does, he takes the foolish aim of his enemies, they were all about the externals, and what he does, he reinforces that which is best, which is the heart. So he says, okay, so my opponents, they're going to be trying to attack me on the external things that they're so fired about. I'm going I'm to take that, turn it against them and say, but we're really about the things that matter. We're really about the heart. We're about true motivations. We're about true passions. We're about the gospel within our lives. Again, we are filled with wisdom. Ready? Ready? When we allow opposition to only sharpen our spiritual vision. So two things, two things can happen when opposition comes. We can stoop to their level and try to fight along with their tactics, or we can rise above and look to Christ. George Whitfield's one of my spiritual heroes. I, I was so blessed. I read his first volume, his, his biography, again a few months ago. And I was struck again. Whenever he was attacked, and he got attacked a lot, he was, he was one of those powerful preachers ever, okay? Ever, ever. It's amazing. And whenever he was attacked by people, the first thing he would do, stop and pray for the person attacking him. It seems so basic biblically, but like, how often do you do that? How often do I do that? Is your first response when people attack you in the midst of opposition is to stop and pray for them genuinely? Or are you like, how dare they? And I'm going to get them. And I'm going to show them. And I'm going to blame them. Anyone else? Anyone else? Anyone else? Anyone else? I appreciate the honesty in this group right here. All right? All right? <laughs> and I'm with them too, man. Like, I mean, my flesh says, oh, yeah? But then Whitfield's like, okay, I can, I can stoop through the level and sin, or I can rise above. And you know what? I read that book. I tried that. I tried that. Like when attacked to stop and pray. It worked. Like, it was amazing. Like, like the love and then, like, the, the impact and that, just like, anyways, just, it's a great thing. The opposition can motivate us to actually become more like Christ as opposed to becoming less. And verse 13, look at verse 13. He says here, for if we are, here's more attacks, I'll explain why. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So this verse tells us that Paul's opponents were accusing him of being mad, being crazy, or being insane, being out of his mind for Jesus Christ. They were telling people that Paul had lost his mind. He was out of his senses. He was a madman speaking foolishness. Isn't it interesting that Jesus himself was accused of the same thing? Isn't it interesting when people are truly made new and they begin to live radical lives for the gospel that the world around them will often deem that as some form of insanity? Hey, question, have you ever been called crazy for Jesus? If you have, bless your heart. I know some of you right now in this room, I would definitely say you've been called crazy for Jesus and I love you for it. I love you for a love on some level. If we're genuinely living out the gospel, there will always be people in society that will look at us and say, you're messed up, man, and say, yeah, praise the Lord for the glory of God I am. You don't understand it, but I pray one day you will, all right? This is one of the realities of living out. But what does Paul do? He takes the opposition. He turns it to motivation. Paul's passion, his zealousness for the Lord was so clear. It made such an impact. The world can't understand it. They try to dismiss it as madness. Again, another 
George Whitfield's story. On the Sunday, the first Sunday after his ordination, he preached a message at his ordination, and it was so powerfully used by God, the people in the village complained to the bishop that George Whitfield had caused 15 people to become insane. Isn't that great? And the bishop was a godly man. And the bishop said this. The bishop said, I wish all clergy had this effect on people as opposed to none at all. Amen? Amen? Isn't that so great? I mean, really, really great. Again, if we're truly living the gospel out, there should be a lot of people looking over and saying, man, you're, you're crazy. And you're just like, yeah, I am. I am. For the Lord. For the Lord. We're not purposely trying to offend. We're not purposely trying to be a nuisance. We're trying to love the Lord. But again, the gospel and the radical outworkings that it has. Verse 13, the summary of this verse that Paul is saying, whether you call me insane or I have a sound mind, I do this for either God's glory and God's glory in the love of God's people. Out of my mind for God. Right mind for you, church. In the face of opposition, his motivation only grew. I want you to see this, okay? okay? I want you to see this. When your vision's clear and your motivation's strong, motivation for the gospel, it will plow through distractions. The motivation for the gospel, it's like when, when big offenses or small offenses come in, they can often um, um, knock us off our bike and we're in the ditch and we're like, ah, oh, I feel so offended. But when we're, when we're motivated and we see the Lord, we plow through the distractions, big or small. We don't take offense because we're in Christ. And then we keep moving on. This is, this is what Paul's doing. He's like, people are attacking him all over the place, but he's so focused on the Lord that he's like, well, you can say what you want, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because the Lord Jesus Christ loves me. I'm a child of him. He's my identity. He has accepted me. All my sins are forgiven. You can do whatever you want, but it doesn't make one look of difference on me because I'm a child of the king. And what's he doing? He's, he's seeing clearly. He's motivated through the gospel. But now we get to the really good stuff, okay? Motivation number three, and it's this, the love of Christ. Here's the purest motivation of the text. It's the love of Christ. I mean, here the gospel just becomes boom, okay? Verse 14. He says, for, again, transition, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Okay, so when Paul says for, see the word for in verse 14, he's moving from one motivation to the next. And it doesn't get any bigger than this one, okay? See the phrase there? Um, for the love of Christ controls us. I mean, not everyone likes to write in their Bibles, but I hope you do, just because it's a great way to learn, or I recommend it. But, I mean, that phrase should be highlighted, circled, something, something, okay? The love of Christ controls us. Now, I want to be clear here. When Paul says this, this is not our love for Christ. This is Christ's love for us. The context shouts that out. The whole context is the gospel. It's not what we did for God, it's what he has done for us. So the love of Christ, Christ's love for us controls us. Remember, the motivation for the gospel itself is the love of God. John 3:16. For God so loved the world, he gave. He gave his only son. The love of God initiated the gospel of God into the world that God created through the Son of God. For God so loved the world, he gave. It's, it's, it's God's love that is the starting point for the gospel upon our lives and in this world. So therefore, I love this, when someone is made new in Jesus Christ, when they are made new, they are born again, they are regenerated, they become a new creation. When someone is made new in Christ, they are 
filled, they are saturated by the love of Christ. When you are made new in Christ, you receive a a blood transfusion from Christ. His blood flows through you now. When you are made new in Jesus Christ, the the spiritual leaven of Jesus Christ uh, uh, takes over and leavens everything by Jesus Christ himself within our lives. The love of God fills us entirely and completely. It takes over and the love of God now determines our ultimate destiny. So no wonder then, Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. Now the verb control here in verse 14, it's a wonderful examination. It carries kind of two meanings, okay? Two basic meanings when it says the love of Christ controls us. When we say that, some of us conjure up different definitions of what control means. Let me explain this uh, right now, okay? The first sense of the love of Christ controlling us Another way to say it is it constrains us. It, it, it protects us. Let me try to explain this. Think about how when the power of the gospel comes into your life and then redirects how you think, how you live, how you act. The gospel then, the love of Christ, comes into us and turns our hearts away from self and now towards the Lord Jesus Christ. The the love of God, the love of Christ, fills our lives, and in this sense, it constrains us, it controls us from destroying our lives with the sin of the world, with our our own sin. So the the love of Christ starts something in us that God's going to finish. The person genuinely saved by the love of Christ will begin walking a path that he or she will never cease to stop walking until they get into glory. Why? Ultimately, it's the love of Christ. It, It protects us. It constrains us. It controls us. It's the grace of God's love which keeps us from eternal damnation and death or sin. Isn't that good news? That's amazing, isn't it? And so this is the love of Christ. This is the love of God. What grace is in his love. This is why the little poem goes, and where would I go or who would I be if the love of God did not live within me? And where would I go and who would I be if the love of God did not live within me? I would be a disaster. I would be a train wreck. I would be dead. I would be in hell. I would be utterly lost. But the love of God controls me. It protects us saved in Christ. It constrains us. But the other sense of this word control is that it compels us. And some translations actually use that word. So it constrains, but then it compels us. Compel is um, urgency. The love of Christ brings an urgency, a compulsion to do something with the love I've been given. So God's love in us throws us forward into fruitfulness in passion. Okay, So in this sense, God's love comes in and protects us. It, it, it captures us, which is so great. But it doesn't just hold on to us forever in the sense that we just sit there and do nothing. It captures us, but then it puts us in a catapult, releases it, and sends us into the world. We are compelled We have compulsion with the love of Christ to share it as well. We persuade others. If we are made new, we have a love that will never leave us, but we want a love that will be shared from us. 
The love of Christ controls us. Paul can't help being who he is because of the love of Christ, because of the love of God within him. It spurs him on in the midst of pain and trial to keep sharing Christ's love with those who need it most. Is our motivation the love of Christ? It has to be. That is why, that is why, my greatest motivation for our fourth service coming up, my greatest motivation is the love of Christ through the gospel. That's why I'm doing it. That's the only thing that can really turn me over to making sense of what's happening. It's because people are dying. And so through the love of Christ, how can we not share this message with, 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 with a dying world and allow a more people, a, a thousand, twelve hundred, more people to come in and be a part of what God is doing? What is that? It's the love of Christ. Um, what would cause you to serve and harvest kids in this new season where we need so many people to jump in? It's the love of Christ. It's not guilt. It shouldn't be guilt. It's not, well, well God will be happy if I do that. It's because I love Christ. I want to spend my life by pouring the love of Christ into other children. I value that because I have God's love in me. I want to share that with others. Uh, why would I serve on the welcome team? Another great need among our churches. Because of the love of, why do I want to share? Because I love people. I love God. I want to share God's love with other people. Uh, why would I move from Sunday to Saturday night in this next season? Because it's the gospel. It's the love of Christ. I give up a seat on Sunday. I come and attend church on Saturday night because my seat allows people to know the love of Christ. And I'm compelled by the love of Christ. This is the way it's supposed to go. Why do I want to reach the lost through my life? The love of Christ. That's why. It's, it's to compel us. We can't keep it in. See, if we're really understanding what's happening here, and the new hope of glory, and the new vision, and then the, the new motivation, and, and the new passion, the love of Christ is just, it's everything. It's the purpose of the gospel that saved us and then sends us as well. What are we motivated by? What's our motivation? Well, for Paul, it's the motivation of the fear of the Lord. It's motivated within opposition. It's motivation with the love of Christ. And then lastly, he's motivated by this. He's motivated through a new ambition. He has a new ambition now. A new ambition. Look at the second half of verse 14. Uh, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, Therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him uh, who, for their sake, died and was raised. Okay, so I need you to see this, loved ones. I need you to see this. The source of all this power, the source of all this motivation, it's all right here. And what's right here? The source of it all is the gospel. Notice what Paul's doing. He's just like, he's like, okay, so the love of Christ controls us, and the one who died, died for all. He's, he's just like, his fuel is the gospel. His perspective is the gospel. He, he's constantly rehearsing the gospel. A sinner, a wretch, in need of a savior. The glory of God came down and saved me. Here I am. I don't deserve to live, but I live for Jesus Christ. It allows him to understand why he exists. He reflects upon the love of God. It keeps inspiring. Again, his very reasoning for his motivation is ending right here, and this is what he impacts again. Are we doing that? If you want to be motivated, man, get the gospel running through your life. Find ways every day to rehearse. That's why, we re that's why we're in this passage right now. Because it's God renewing our minds 
to the truth that matters most, that we might live effective lives resulting in his glory. And this pattern is to be repeated every day in some form so that we keep reminding ourselves of why we live. And so we're motivated. Again, what's temporal? What's eternal? What dies? What lasts? What, what's a waste of time? What counts for Jesus Christ? We're just being reminded of this right now. You notice what Paul says in verse 14? Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. That's amazing. One has died, Jesus has died for all, therefore all have died. Jesus saves us from death. He propels us to life. Now what does it mean that Christ died and therefore all have died? It means that when Christ died, we died with him. Uh, Galatians 2.20. My flesh has been crucified, no longer I who live, but him who lives in me. So with Christ, the old self, the old self has been crucified with him. The penalty of sin removed. And the presence of sin will soon be dealt with. The, the, the days of our sinful flesh are numbered once and for all. Because Christ died, our old self died with him. And we are no longer under the penalty of him or the power of him. And we are now free to live in Christ. And, and that's why, loved ones, when we, when we are changed by the gospel and word made new, like this just in, we're, we're made new. We become, again, in verse 17, next week, Lord willing, verse 17, it says, the old has gone, the new has come. The old has passed away. Behold, the new is here. The new has come. We are now new creations because he died. We all died with him. Our sin died with him. Our old self died with him. And when the old self is crucified with Christ on the cross, we now have the ability to live, to live in fullness and freedom and power and passion. So what's happening here in verses, in the verse 14, it's this. It's the death of death in the death of Christ. It's the death of death in the death of Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. Why, why? Because one has died for all, therefore all have died. Every person who gives their lives to Jesus Christ, their old self is killed and they are free to live for Christ. It's interesting in the passage to come, Paul says, I implore you to be reconciled to Christ. How many are here right now and you're dead? I mean, I wonder, in all sincerity, how many are here right now and you are spiritually dead? Physically, you're alive, your heart is beating, but spiritually, there's no heartbeat. Do you know that you're not alive? That's a fascinating question. Do you know that Christ does not live in you because there's no fruit? There's no love for God? I mean, half the stuff I'm saying right now, you're just like, well, I might see that in other people, but in my life, I don't see any of that. That's a very serious sign that God has not saved you. That there's no spirit of God in you. Because when you're made new, man, you got, you, got, you got to know it. When the Holy Spirit comes in and brings you from death to life, there's a whole awakening, there's a whole, everything changes. I mean, you're just, you literally become an entirely new person. And so do you think you're sitting here right now to listen to this message, just go through the motions and leave again that nothing changes in your life? Are you kidding me? 
You think you're here by accident? That God would put you in your seat right now? That you would just sit and listen to this with a hard heart and a dull mind and have no bearing whatsoever on what this means for your eternal destiny? Really? Could it be that you're here right now because God loves you so much that he gave his one and only son that if you would believe in him that you will not die but have everlasting life? Could it be that God calls from you right now faith from your life and your heart to exercise by his grace and faith in you that Jesus Christ died for all your sins and paid for all of them that you would say, I am not Lord, I am not king. Jesus, you are Lord, you are king. I believe in you, I love you, I trust in you and I want you to save me that I too might be crucified in old flesh that I might live now with the newness of life. Could it be that you are here to hear that message right now? And could it be that the Lord wants to rescue you from death and hell and sin and save you for eternity? Could it be? It's one of the main reasons we're even here to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that others might know the joy that we have of being made new in him, not because you're a good person, because he's an awesome savior. See, Robbie, what do I do? You, you turn from sin and you run to Christ as best you know how. And you call him King and Lord. And you say, Lord, I want you to save me. And then what happens? Well, notice the outworking and the implications of the gospel in verse 15. And he died for all, Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. So here's just a little, little test right here, okay? If you want, yeah, okay, Jesus, you save me from life. Or you save me from death, so I have life. You save me, but now I want to live for myself. See, a lot of people in this world, they do that. Oh, Jesus, okay, so I get the fire assurance, but let me just go live for myself now. So you save me from death, but I won't give you any part of my life. I live for self. You don't get it. That's the person, if they keep living this way over all this time, they don't get it. If you say, Jesus, save me from death, but now I want to do everything I want to do in my life and live for myself where I'm actually king, that, that, that is not truly someone who's made new. You, you can't do that forever. That means there's no genuine transformation. See, the reason he died is that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him, but for him, but for him, but for him. That we might live. Are you like me? Like when I read verse 15, there's something in my heart that goes, Doop. like when I read this, I'm just like, yes! Like I, I, it's the spirit of God in me. My flesh is like, no! But the spirit of God in me says, yes! This is why you exist, Simons! This is your purpose! Your purpose isn't for self. Your purpose is for Christ. Something in me, I read this verse, I'm like, yes! Yes, this, this is it right here. I have been saved for something beyond myself. I have been saved not for my glory. I've been saved for God's glory. This, this is it. That I might no longer live for me, but I might live for him. Because the day is coming so soon, I will see him. I will see him. I will, I will meet him face to face. And all that matters then it's who I was and what I did. And then I realized this life is about him and all the glory belongs to him. I love this verse. It's the purpose of our lives. He died that we might live and live not for self, but live for him. Notice it says, notice it says, I mean, don't miss this, who for their sake who for the, who believers' sake died and was raised. Does that humble you? That should humble you right now, okay? You, you look at this, you're like, for my, for my sake? But I'm a sinner. I, 
for my sake he died and was raised? Sake means purpose, ambition, and Jesus Christ made us, his children, his ambition. He lived and died for us, for our sake, that we might live. That humbles me and that should humble you. We are not worthy. He is worthy. He has made us his ambition. Loved ones, should we not then make him ours? He has made us his ambition. Should we then not make him our ambition? He has made us his ambition. Should we not then make him our ambition? Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us, Lord. What's your motivation, loved ones? What's our motivation? It was John G. Payton, the amazing missionary to the New Hebrides. And he was going back to this place where cannibals were, and cannibals had previously killed and eaten missionaries. And a man protested Peyton's traveling to the New Hebrides by saying, the cannibals, the cannibals, you'll be eaten by cannibals. You know what John Peyton said in response to this man saying, you'll be eaten by cannibals? He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. He says, I confess to you that I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus. It will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. There's your answer, Mr. Dixon. What is that? How can he say that? Who lives like that? Someone who's motivated by the fear of the Lord? someone who's motivated within opposition, someone who's motivated by the love of Christ, and someone who's motivated through an entirely and supernatural new ambition. That was John Payton's life, and that can be ours as well. If we are made new, we must be motivated. Final question, what motivates you? What motivates you?